Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. This week, I'm joined to review the week in the markets and uh, the investment trust sector by Alistair Lang, co-manager of Capital Gearing Trust, the multi-asset absolute return trust that has been grown to more than 1.2 billion in assets on the back of a 40-year history of consistent absolute returns and a firm zero discount policy. The trust gains most of its exposure to risk assets through the medium of investment trusts and ETFs, exchange-traded funds, but remains very defensively positioned at present, as we will be discussing. Before going further, I hope you will forgive me for mentioning that the first hardback copies of this year's annual investment trust handbook, the 2023 edition, have now arrived. For those who would like to read it, you can order a copy from the Moneymakers website, and we also offer a free ebook download. The handbook is now in its sixth year and offers what is now, I think, a, a quite well-established formula, 200 pages of articles, interviews, profiles, analysis, and data. And most of the content is uh, entirely new this year, as always. One of those features is an investor forum with half a dozen leading professional specialists in investment trusts, of which I'm happy to say Alistair Lang, who's with me today, is one. Well over 40,000 copies of the handbook have been sold or downloaded since I started it five years ago, and we expect to breach the 50,000 mark this year. Thank you to all of you who've supported the publication over the last few years and those who've said they found it very helpful and useful. There's a good deal of detail in the handbook about the dramatic events of this year, and I look forward to what we might expect in the year to come. It's been a year which has highlighted why investment trusts are best suited to the more sophisticated private investor, as it's important to understand that they will, in aggregate, tend to underperform in years when the stock market is falling. Discounts also widen in down markets, compounding the decline in net asset values. And that is what we've seen this year, during which the average discount has widened from around 2% at the start of the year, historically that's a, a very low figure, to around 11-12% today. A discount volatility is the price you pay in order to obtain the generally superior long-term performance that investment trusts offer. While many investors with a long-term horizon can afford to sit out the current market declines, there are fortunately plenty of alternatives for those with a more active or defensive investment approach. A capital gearing trust is one such trust. It sits in the flexible investment sector alongside the likes of rougher and personal assets and has a stated objective to preserve shareholders' real wealth, in other words, after inflation, and to achieve an absolute total return over the medium to longer term, with greater emphasis on avoiding loss than maximising returns. There's only been one financial reporting year in which it has failed to produce a positive return in the last 40 years, and that was only by a very narrow margin. Although there is a chance that this financial year, the one that runs to 31st of March, is one in which it might narrowly, again, fail to match that track record. The share price total return over the last 10 months is currently around minus 3%. And on my calculation, Alistair, you're going to need to uh, find about 3% of return between now and the end of your financial year to get back to zero. It's still a very impressive long-term record. Let's kick off then, Alistair, if we may, by talking about the markets uh, before we come on to what you're doing and uh, how you see things. This has been an unusual year in which both stocks and bonds have tanked at the same time, uh, something which doesn't happen very often. But both have rallied nicely since October, at least until this week. Equities up 15% or so, and the 10-year US Treasury yield down by around three quarters of a percentage point. 
from 4.25% to 3.5%. This week, however, just as uh, the bullish members of the market were getting excited about a potential change in direction of the markets, we've seen equity markets sell off again, while bond yields have basically flatlined. So market participants, as we've been discussing for several weeks, seem to be divided as to whether we have just had a bear market rally or we're at the start of a new bill market, driven by what uh, its proponents of that view think will be falling inflation, an imminent end to the Federal Reserve's interest rate hikes, uh, and an end to dollar strength as well. You, however, Alistair, Capital Gearing Trust, remains defensively positioned. In fact, very defensively positioned. So what is your take on where we are at the moment, and uh, what's the thinking behind your defensive stance? Right. Well, thanks, Jonathan. Thank you for that uh, very kind introduction. And before I get started, I'd just like to say that I received my copy of the Investment Trust Handbook yesterday, which is always a very exciting day in our office. I've not read it cover to cover yet, but I've flicked through it and uh, there's some great content in there. Yes, there has been a notable change in atmosphere over the last month or so. And since 2022 is the year when everything has gone wrong, everything has turned out worse than most investors and economists expected at the start of the year. Obviously, Ukraine popped up there. A lot of people thought inflation would be transitory. It proved much more sticky. Bond yields have risen much further and faster than most of the worst predictions out there. So for much of the year, it has been a great challenge. I think in the last month, as you say, there's been a bit of a change of atmosphere. Whilst I wouldn't say things have got back to normal at all, there is a sense that at least expectation and reality was a bit closer. So, you know, we've seen European energy prices reduce a bit. We are past peak inflation or close to peak inflation in a number of jurisdictions. Economic activities held up a bit better than the worst fears in the kind of September bond market meltdown. And whilst it's a double-edged sword, I think China relaxing its zero COVID policy and opening up a bit has all collectively led to a slightly more positive narrative. So, yeah, I think um, that that has helped this bull market that you, that you mentioned that's come about over the last month and a half or so. We remain somewhat cautious, though. I think it was Warren Buffett who initially said it, but certainly my partner, Peter Spiller, loves to mention that there's never just one cockroach uh, in the kitchen. You know, we've seen an LDI-driven guilt market meltdown. We've seen FTX. The reality is, as US interest rates rise, as they have been recently, things tend to break sometimes unexpectedly throughout the financial system. And we just remain quite wary that there is more to come. And actually, um, I'm sure we can touch on it. But even the measure that you mentioned right at the beginning, investment trust discounts, these remain quite wide. And I find that interesting because although the underlying equities have risen, what you've not seen is, is a change in sentiment as expressed by retail and the parts of institutional market focused on, on investment trusts piling back in and pushing those discounts in. So I think there's quite a lot of nervousness that sits behind this recent equity market strength. That's certainly how we're seeing it. 
Certainly, I can ask about Capital Gearing Trust itself and its portfolio, which is uh, still largely dominated, I think, by inflation-linked bonds and other types of bonds as well. You, you bought some of those as well, I think, when interest rates peaked a few weeks ago. But what, have you been making any significant changes? In other words, the question I often ask people is, well, not what do you think, but what are you doing? And uh, have you reacted to this kind of slight change in uh, atmosphere by uh, making any uh, significant moves? Well, the most dramatic time in this year, at least for UK financial markets, was at the end of September and the early weeks of October, when there was the trust guilt market debacle. So there was a very sharp sell-off across the bond markets and equity markets. And that was a very interesting time for investors who had some cash on the sidelines, and we'd include ourselves there, is to say, where do you focus? And whilst I think there are parts of the UK market and other parts of the global equity market that actually look reasonable value now, we didn't feel that the US market had adjusted sufficiently much from a starting point of very high valuations to say, well, this looks like the time to pile in. But the bond market to us looked quite a different story. It had sold off very aggressively, very fast. I believe I'm right in the gilt market that it was the sharpest sell-off ever. If not the sharpest, it was certainly very close to that in the top two or three occasions in the entire history of the gilt market. So our initial focus was very much there. And we moved about 10% of our portfolio into index-linked bonds and 2% into nominal gilts. And it's been a very long time since uh, nominal gilts were a potentially interesting investment from our point of view, at least. So this was quite a move. I think the other thing we did was move out of the dollar and the euro into a combination of sterling and, and yen at the point at which sterling, sterling was very, very beaten up in that rally. So it just made sense to crystallize some of the profits and bring them back. Um, this is all rather a long-winded way of saying a lot of the action in our portfolio has been outside, actually, the equity markets and the investment trust markets, even though we've been keeping a close eye on what's going on there. Yes, and uh, I think when uh, we had a very brief conversation with Peter Spiller at the recent AIC uh, showcase event, he was saying that you had bought some index LinkedIn uh, for the probably the first time for a long, long time. UK, UK index linked, I should say, not US, which you've owned for a long time. But you, he also said that your your kind of equity, your pure risk exposure was probably just about the lowest levels it's been at that point anyway, for a long time. So what would it take for you to become more positive? I mean, I noticed a quote this week, which might as well mention it from uh, one of the strategists at JP Morgan, who said, the biggest risk is waiting too long to get invested by waiting until we feel everything is okay. In other words, it's another way of saying that basically the best time to buy back into risk assets and equity markets in particular is when things are really gloomy and everybody's talking in near suicidal terms. But what would it take in this current market where we're starting from a rather unusual backcloth of having had a long period of zero interest rates and so on? Uh, what would it take for you to start thinking more seriously about uh, increasing your equity and risk asset exposure? Well, I actually saw that same piece of research, Jonathan, and there is definitely something to that. It depends on the investor profile. But, you know, equities are undoubtedly, in my mind anyhow, better value today than they were 12 months ago. So all else being equal, that argues for potentially a higher weight to equities. 
The important lens through which we take the decisions, though, is our mandate and our investor preference. We have a mental image of uh, our kind of archetypal client, and that client would have a long-term horizon and aversion to loss. And that's something we take very importantly and a total return mindset. So um, we think there's quite a lot of value available in the bond market, even in the, in the credit market, where we can generate really quite decent returns from this starting point without taking undue levels of, of risk. And whilst I think that an investor with a long-term horizon who's buying at these levels will not be disappointed, I think they will generate significantly positive real returns from here over a 10 or 15-year horizon. Um, I think within our mandate, we take the view of a conservative investor for whom it would be a significant blow to experience significant drawdowns over a short-term period. So we just don't think equities are sufficiently compelling value to jump in in a, in a large way. Um, as to what it would take for us to make that decision, I think the key indicator we'd look for is better value in the US equity market. That's a really important market for us as we look at risk assets globally, because the US equities make up 60% of the global equity market. And whilst I think UK equities at current valuations are at good value today, I just can't see a world in which there's air coming out of the US market. But markets like the UK or Japan are making decent headway. So I think seeing a bit more air coming out of the US market would be a precondition for a major reallocation into equities. But it's definitely something that we discuss. The US market, as you say, is not only dominates the global equity market capitalization, but also has a far superior track record over longer periods of time than, than most other markets uh, historically, at least certainly in the recent <clears> few <throat> decades. Uh, are you of the view that actually the US might actually avoid a recession? People who are more bearish tend to think, well, okay, we've seen multiple contraction to some extent in the US market. PE ratios have come down and so on. But we haven't actually seen earnings in aggregate come down, which is what would probably happen if we did have a recession. Do you have a view about that? Or are you strictly kind of like the Federal Reserve is watching the data? Well, I think the current consensus is that if the US is going to have a recession, it's going to be quite a mild one. As against that, you mentioned the Federal Reserve, and they are important players here. I mean, the old adage is don't fight the Fed. And to be honest, we the Capital Gearing Trust could probably have done a better job listening to that, because over the last 10 years, the Fed has really wanted the market to be going up as it loosened financial conditions. And it did. And we stood there pointing at it saying, our valuations are getting crazy. But the reality is with the high levels of liquidity as a tailwind, the market found a way to keep going higher. The Fed is incredibly explicit, unusually explicit, that its objective now is to tighten financial conditions in order to get inflation under control. Equity prices are an important component of financial conditions. And so there's this strange dance going on that each time a bit of good news comes out, as it has over the last month and a half, equity markets, you know, there's been a big case of buy the dip. Lots of people thinking, well, maybe now's the time to get in. And then the Fed's coming out and saying, this is an issue. 
equity prices going up means financial conditions are loosening and we need them to tighten. So I think that's a tension that needs to play out before I think the backdrop is in place for another proper bull market. I think valuations need to come down and we need to work our way through this inflationary period and ideally work down some of the debt in the system. And then I think the market would be placed for another extended bull run on firmer foundations. I think the other point just to mention from uh, listening to uh, what you've been saying in your presentations and so on, is that I think you take the view that even if the Federal Reserve stops raising interest rates on the grounds that it can't do much more, and that might be because it's worried about the impact on the housing market and all the other factors, that it's still unlikely that uh, we will get inflation back down to its target quickly. And even if we do, that there could then be a second wave of inflation after that. In other words, this is going to be an ongoing battle against inflation. It won't be one in one battle, so to speak. Is that, is that a fair summary of what, you're, what you've been saying? Yes, that's absolutely our fear. And we spend a lot of time, as you know, Jonathan, looking at inflation and inflation data. And there is a great danger that I get into too much detail on this subject. But I would imagine at a high level, inflation is certainly coming down. The headline rate of inflation is coming down. But what the Fed's really interested in is the underlying inflation rate, which is something called core inflation. And that strips out, for example, the volatile components like food and energy. And it does look like energy prices are likely to come down from their recent peaks. So I think we may well be in an environment where headline inflation looks like it's becoming quite well behaved, heading back down towards 2%. But the underlying inflation rate remains up in mid-single digit levels. So that means when the current disinflationary pulse from energy prices being a a little lower than they have been recently washes through the system, then you have this inexorable climb back up towards the core level. If you like, the core is, is what's giving the gravitational pull and the actual headline CPI can weave like a snake around this, but ultimately gets pulled back in to this kind of center line. And it's much harder to reduce core levels of inflation. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Federal Reserve remains really quite concerned that um, financial conditions shouldn't be eased too much because this core level of inflation is so high. And related to that, of course, is the fact that unemployment is still very low by historical standards. The US economy is still pretty close to what is practically full employment. And therefore, It's very unusual for the Fed to stop uh, raising interest rates when unemployment is still so low. And that in turn means that a lot of people being in work, there's a danger of a a kind of wage price spiral as well. Is that all right as higher wages come through, particularly in the service sector and so on? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it's extraordinary how low unemployment is, actually not just in the US, it's the same here in the UK. But yeah, in the US, there's something like 1.6 or 1.7 job vacancies for every unemployed person in the economy. And a number of unemployed individuals will not be actually looking for jobs. So there remains an incredibly robust jobs market in the US. But you could say the same for here. It's, it's a strange situation where we may already be in a recession here in the UK, If not, it seems very likely that we will be. But it's still clearly incredibly hard for a number of employers to fill the positions that they want to. Uh, Unemployment remains extremely low. 
And this all does point to a kind of more sticky underlying rate of inflation that, you know, could well be a feature of the economy for a number of years to come. Which in turn will have implications both for uh, how you invest your money and also, of course, for the investment trust sector uh, will have an impact on discounts and so on. And let's, let's turn to the investment trust sector then. Um, you mentioned before the discounts are quite wide, but haven't particularly narrowed in the last few weeks when we've had this kind of rally. But of course, wide discounts are opportunities for investors as well. So if you're a long-term investor, you would take a view that you want to increase your equity exposure at these more attractive levels. You will get a, potentially an additional return from buying some uh, very out-of-favor equity trusts as well, presumably. There will be the double whammy of eventually improving NAVs and narrowing discounts again. That would be a fair summary, I think. Yes, absolutely. I think that's absolutely correct. I think discounts on average in the conventional investment trust space are about as wide as they've been since the global financial crisis. So just looking at that kind of high-level measure, you'd say now is a time of interesting opportunity. And, you know, we're definitely seeing some interesting potential investments. The only thing that I would caution from that is one feature of the investment trust market is that it is a good vehicle for holding less liquid and in some cases completely illiquid private market investments. So if you look at some quite kind of high profile retail type investment trusts like Scottish Mortgage or RIT, quite often in there, there's at least a portion of their portfolio which is private. And then thinking about what a discount means is interesting. So I, I think with discounts, it's always worth doing the extra level of due diligence of discount to what, rather than simply saying, okay, there's opportunity here. So as with any area of investment, it requires some digging around. But yeah, absolutely, there are opportunities out there for sure. I mean, the other factor, you mentioned equity investment trust, but obviously the main feature of the last 10 years in the investment trust market has been the rise of alternative assets, which now account, I think, we've got up to about 50% of the total by market capitalization. And of course, I think it's a fair generalization to say that uh, rising bond yields are not a good backcloth for almost any kind of alternative asset investment. Some of them obviously are promoted on the basis that they are good diversifiers. They're not correlated to the movement in uh, equity markets in particular. Um, but generally speaking, it is the case, I think, that rising bond yields are not a favourable backcloth for alternative asset investments. Yeah, I think the alternative investment trust space is a fascinating one and covers a range of different asset classes. I think the, the areas with the largest discounts at the moment are private equity, fund of funds, and I think there is quite a lot of investor concern that essentially highly leveraged private investments, uh, leveraged buyouts, as they're called, and increasingly kind of techie VC type investments in the underlying portfolios have not yet been properly marked to market. Or they're not expressing the kind of falls that have been seen in the public markets. But the other double whammy is the fact that uh, interest rates going up in a highly leveraged buyout will lead to lower returns for the equity sponsor. Set against this, this was a real concern during the global financial crisis, which was the last time these types of funds went to very significant discounts. And actually, over time, these all these funds did okay. 
So, I mean, there is, I'm sure, opportunity amongst this set, but it really does require some uh, careful uh, due diligence because these are very specific types of investments that would sit outside really the mainstream kind of retail area. Well, let's talk about another sector, which is commercial property. Now, not so long ago, you had quite a significant holding in commercial property trusts, particularly some of the alternative property uh, investment trusts. I mean, we've had quite a lot of news in that sector. I mean, the uh, rising bond yields typically are negative for commercial property generally, but there's been some quite uh, dramatic moves among some of the alternatives as well, which are targeting 7 to 10% kind of thing, total return, mostly dividends. Uh, and they've all sold off, or many of them gone to a discount. And we've also had kind of bad mood music, if you like, around uh, social housing sector, where this week we heard the results from Civitas Social Housing, very positive uh, NAV reported, business going well, net asset value going up. But they have this cloud over them about the issues around the business model and the issue around housing associations and so on. And we also had the drama over the activist short sellers attack on home REIT. So just on that issue, I mean, have you ever invested in the social housing sector? And if so, what are your thoughts about this? Is it a healthy development that we're having these kind of short sellers coming in and targeting these particular trusts? So we have in the past had investments in, in home REIT. We don't currently, we do currently have investments in Civitas for kind of full disclosure. There's something about this story which is very sad. I mean, it is obviously kind of interesting, exciting, a bit shocking potentially, but, but home REIT, just to give a bit of context, that is a REIT that holds properties to house homeless people, essentially homeless, homeless shelters. And that, alongside Civitas, the regulators are extremely keen to get private capital into these marketplaces because essentially government funding has completely dried up. So the way that this has been achieved is by these underlying occupiers writing long leases where their property payments are essentially ultimately funded by the Department of Work and Pensions. What's really sad about this is that both Civitas and Home REIT have been subject to short attacks. Home REIT most recently, and we have no holding currently, so I haven't spent a lot of time looking at the report, but I did look at it quickly. There are a couple of points in there that were really worthy of further questioning. Most of them could very easily be just scratched off the list as kind of extraneous bits of mud kind of held in the general space. And these short attacks tend to have that kind of characteristic but there are so many accusations made that they're very hard to refute. Uh, and what's absolutely certain is that it will be very hard to raise additional private capital for these types of vehicles. And given what they're seeking to do, that really strikes me as quite sad. It's a feature of public markets that when the press gets involved and, you know, it's all very exciting, but given there's just two or three underlying points of concern. It seems to me a more sober analysis of the facts could have been conducted, whereas I think there has been a wholesale stampede for the exit, with no doubt the shares being sold back to the American hedge fund that had shorted this stock and put considerable efforts into destroying its reputation. So I'm by no means an expert on home REIT, but I think as with Civitas, I think it's highly likely that these rents will continue to get paid. I think they 
seem to me to offer a fairly cost-effective way to get these kind of assets, make them available to the ultimate tenants. And I think it's a shame that there may have been some historic practices that really need to be investigated. But I think on the whole, these are reasonably well-run companies which are going to take years to recover their reputation. Yes, it's worth making the point, I guess, that in case of Civitas Social Housing, let's leave Henry to side for the moment. Civitas Social Housing, it was some time since the short seller got involved in that situation. The shares traded a discount of something like 45% or something. But it's, I think it's fair to say that the NAV probably would have gone to discount anyway, given the rising bond yields are still ultimately a property investment trust. So one has to make that point, I think. Uh, but for the moment, as you say, the market is closed for them, but they're still paying their dividend. It appears to be uh, more or less covered, and uh, they're offering a, quite an attractive yield, somewhere 8 9% or something. So that all looks quite interesting. Uh, just to quickly on further on commercial property then, I noticed this week we heard the announcement of some of the insiders, by which I don't mean people trading illegally, but uh, executives or managers involved with the trust, have been buying shares in LXI REIT. And I wonder what you thought, whether you own LXI REIT. It obviously did a merger recently with another investment trust that I know you used to own. And there's also another one called Value Index and Property, which is similar kind of strategy, which is long-term inflation-linked property. Do you have a view about those two? And do you think there's much of any significance into these director purchases? Well, our take is that the yields implied by the current share price across a lot of these alternative property REITs, you know, in the shorthand, they're beds, meds and sheds. I think the yields look attractive to us. The thing that we are focused on, having established that, is the state of the balance sheet. Because certainly in historic crises, the global financial crisis being the absolute poster child for this, the issue came when there were a whole series of emergency rights issues because funders basically were pulling the plug. So I think there are interesting opportunities in this sector, but I'd say the key point to establish is how well-structured the balance sheet is. And it's also worth checking there aren't too many adjacent vehicles that are likely to have to to issue equity because that can really taint a whole space. But um, LXR, yes, we're we're holders there, and I think their prospects from these levels look uh, reasonably attractive. So taking a read across to another alternative sector, then, picking up on some of those issues you've talked about, I mean, one of the trusts which is always widely followed for, for all sorts of reasons is uh, Hypnosis Songs, ticker S-O-N-G, which is the Music Royalty Trust, or one of two we have in the investment trust sector. They, too, have gone to a huge discount. They started off at a roaring pace when they were uh, launched, but now they trade again on a 40, 45% discount or so, I think. They produce an updated NAV this week. It was positive once you look behind the numbers. Uh, but there's two issues there, I think, isn't there? One is about the balance sheet, as you say, whether it's got too much debt. And the second is, what is the right discount rate at which to value this kind of trust? And this is generally true of alternative asset trusts. You know, the longer the time horizon, the greater the issue around what is the discount rate, because all these uh, valuations are done on the basis of effectively uh, asset price movements and interest rates. Do you have a view about Song? Some people think it's a bit too good to be true. Other people think this is a golden opportunity. Have you looked at those? And what do you think about that general issue? I'm afraid, Jonathan, I have to put my hands up on this one and say, uh, you know far more about it than I do. We have taken a look at it on a couple of occasions, and we've just thought it's too hard for us to ascertain what a NAV should be. And 
yes, as with any discounts, it's always the question to ask is a discount to what? And we just didn't feel we were particularly well placed to make those judgments. So I'm, I'm really sorry. I don't have terribly much to say there. That's no problem at all. Let's talk instead about Renewable Energy Trust, where there's some similar issues come up here, which is where you've got a trust which has got a business model and it's got quite a long life ahead of it uh, in many cases. But the issue is when interest rates go up, in order to get a kind of mark-to-model valuation, you have to apply a discount rate to work out that valuation. And I think there's a general question now around the renewable energy sector, which have gone mostly to a discount. Have they got the right discount rates in there? In other words, should they be putting up their discount rates and therefore seeing the NAV uh, come down a bit more? What's your thought about that particular sector? Well, yeah. So renewables were interesting to us because there were two areas in which their valuations were being challenged. First is you say just the rise in the risk-free rate and whether discount rates should go up. And they have pretty universally gone up in the recent rounds of NAV's production. We can discuss whether maybe they should go up a little bit more, but um, they have somewhat responded there. But the other line of uncertainty, particularly in the UK, was around what has finally settled as a windfall tax. But you may remember in the short-lived trust administration, she was saying that she didn't want to put in a windfall tax. In fact, I think it was one of her, her kind of election pledges that she wasn't going to do that. So she was looking at putting in another mechanism to cap power prices. And so there's been so much uncertainty over this sector for four or five months as government has been discussing what approach it will take to try and cap what is, in their view, excess profits. And I should quickly say, as, as the renewable producers themselves say, no one during COVID, when power prices were very low, was running in saying, here's some support to ensure that your investors get decent returns. So there does seem something a little uh, unfair and on the windfall tax on the other side. But suffice to say, the windfall tax, whilst taking away some of the upside, proved not to be as damaging as some analysts had feared or certainly than the proposals under the trust administration. So the gearing on the whole is not too bad. And the revenues have been fairly strong due to quite strong index linking. And I would note that even though power prices did come off in the fourth quarter as a whole, they have recently picked back up again on feature of this cold snap. It's really only been over the last week and a half, but uh, there has been quite a notable pickup again in power prices. That also came from the fact that basically all the storage in Europe was completely full. So <laughs> despite this big scramble for LNG, all of a sudden they couldn't bring any more, more on. The price dipped quite strongly to reflect that. And all of a sudden it's back up there again. So we think that in this infra space, actually renewables do look reasonably interesting at this level and are probably less subject to just the more brutal aspects of pushing through higher interest rates into lower NAVs via lower discount rates. I think there'll be some offsetting additional revenues that will help cushion that. So let's move away from the alternatives for the moment then and we'll go back to the equity markets where you obviously still have some exposure at least. Uh, I wanted to ask your thoughts about investment style, by which I mean the difference between a growth approach to investing and a value approach to investing on the one hand, mm -hmm. and also we can take in the issue of small cap versus large cap. Let's start with the small cap, large cap, first of all. We have seen this interesting dichotomy in the UK. We've seen UK large cap 
equity trusts, ones that typically uh, track the FTSE 100, they've performed pretty well. They've paid a good dividend and they have not actually down much this year. Whereas small cap and mid cap have taken a real beating. We heard this week, for example, from Schroeder UK mid cap, ticker SCP, which announced its uh, interim results and its NAV was annual results, a bigger button, down uh, 30%. NAV total return down 30% and the benchmark down 26.8%. That's sort of indicative of the divergence between small and large cap. Do you think that's likely to persist in the current environment? Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, in our view, the whole UK market now looks pretty attractively priced. The small caps have dramatically outperformed UK large caps when viewed over the last five years. So that's important context. So if we start with the FTSE 100, the slightly simplified but not materially incorrect thing to say about that is you get a lot of energy, a lot of the oil majors, you get a lot of mining, there are financials as well. And all of these areas are kind of deep value areas. You know, there's plenty of, I think, just looking at Glencore, I believe that's on about a P of five at the moment. A lot of the oil majors between six and a P of six and seven. Now there are plenty of investors who have questions around their business models. But it's hard to say that these valuations, they look stretched. I mean, there are many, many companies in the American market which are trading on higher revenue multiples than these companies are trading on PE multiples. So um, I think those areas in the UK large cap look cheap, but it would be quite a misnomer to think of them as UK companies. I mean, they are global companies serving global markets. When you drop into the mid and smaller caps, then you are getting somewhere closer to kind of UK PLC. As you say, they've had a huge re-rating over the last year. They were quite frothy, but I think with this re-rating, the FTSE 250 and and downwards is looking much more attractively priced. So uh, we think the whole area, really, all of it is interesting. Yeah, it's a real standout market for us, the UK. Let's then quickly mention another, in the style context, it's very easy to kind of put shorthands around this and it doesn't necessarily describe it, but just looking at some other results this week, we heard from uh, Finsbury Growth and Income, which is Nick Train's Trust, which is a kind of concentrated quality growth portfolio with emphasis on long-term resilient business models. We heard from Monks, which is Bailey Gifford's Global Equity Trust, uh, differentiated from uh, Scottish Mortgage. And we also heard from Securities Trust of Scotland, which is a global equity income trust managed by Troy Asset Management. Their results have all been in actually quite good. I mean, in relative terms, Finsbury Growth and Income was off around 5%. Securities Trust of Scotland down uh, NAV total return minus 2.7%, slightly ahead of the index. Monks perhaps also down 5.2% NAV total return. All these are interim statements uh, against a benchmark slightly wider than that. So is that reflecting the fact that these are just good managers with strong track records and uh, good strategies? Or is there something more general one can say about style, whether quality growth or however you would choose to describe Securities Trust of Scotland? That would be very similar, I would say, though they have an income bias. What would you think about that? Would you, would you ever own any of these large equity investment trusts? I rather suspect not. We do, actually. We own both Finsbury and Security Trust of Scotland. I think this is a great example of why investment trusts are so interesting, because you have the portfolio you're interested in and then the wrapper itself. So Finsbury growth, I'd say, is kind of uh, quality stocks with a kind of slightly growthy bias. It's not our natural hunting ground. But uh, earlier this year, after a period of 
fairly pedestrian performance for what has been an amazing long-term record combined with a bear market. You had a situation where this company sold off quite hard, the discount blew out, and that for us was an interesting point at which to jump on the register. So we've, we've only been on the register for about six months, I believe. But it's a great example of how within the investment trust, value can be expressed by discounts, even if the underlying stocks are more quality or growth. And this is something we always think about as investors. I wouldn't say we're agnostic towards value or growth, but we think about value as expressed by the opportunities through the discounts on the trust themselves. And here we have a value approach to investing into quality growth stocks. I mean, what more could you want? So yeah, we were very happy with our uh, investments in Finsbury Growth. Monks, I know that they're going through a portfolio review now. My understanding is that they are seeking to have less kind of growthy tech focus. That's my understanding. We don't hold it. Bailey Gifford obviously have great expertise within these areas. But, um, you know, my sense is in terms of underlying styles that growth has had such phenomenal period of outperformance for such a long time that uh, I'm not surprised that they're saying there should be some rotation towards a more value style. I don't know if that's correct interpretation of what monks are doing, but um, that would certainly be our view that values day in the sun must come at some time. But I seem to remember Jonathan having this conversation with you uh, in the the past, and uh, (laughs) we've definitely called that too early, but maybe, maybe now is the time for that pendulum to swing. Can I just ask you that context then? Can you imagine circumstances in which you would would want to invest in an investment trust, whether global or UK, which had a kind of split public-private mandate, which has been the kind of trend in Bailey Gifford over the last few years? They make some good cases for that. Most of their equity investment trusts, though not all, have uh, increased their exposure to private assets. Is that actually uh, potentially a positive or a negative as far as you're concerned, if you're looking for a particular kind of exposure? So, firstly... Any investor cannot have anything but a huge amount of admiration for what Bailey Gifford have done, for example, with Scottish Mortgage Trust. You know, there you have a vehicle that's available for an institutional investor or a retail investor on the same terms with low fees, doing something really differentiated, including access to private markets on really reasonable terms. (laughs) I'm not here to promote their business, but you just think... That is something really differentiated. It's really clear what it is. And yeah, it's no surprise to me that they've absolutely thrived. It is not an easy thing to pull off. And there have been many cycles, and I'm sure you've observed them, Jonathan, over your history of investment trusts pushing into private markets and then retreating. And during the bull market, these private investment pockets are always seen as sources of huge untold wealth and bounties. But when it comes to the bear market, they just become this point of huge concern. And, you know, let's take a stock like Artemis Alpha. Its private investments became such an issue for it, explaining them, that it became very difficult for that trust ever to re-rate to a position where it was a kind of vibrant and viable situation. Now, I don't think that would be the case with Scottish Mortgage just because of its scale, but I would be concerned to be a medium-sized investment trust 
without such a clear mandate, with a pool of private assets that are not performing brilliantly, that is a very hard position to work your way out from. So, yeah, I think for most investors, a model where you have conventional investment trusts that hold equities and alternative investment trusts that hold private market investments, if you want exposure to them, will make most sense. And ultimately, you leave that to the investor to make that decision rather than an interim investment manager. That's my gut feel. But, you know, you can't take anything away from what Bailey Gifford have achieved over the last decade. Well, this is bringing us towards the end now, Alistair. You may be glad to know that. <laughs> Let's talk about, uh, you mentioned the dollar and the US market are going to be the most important one for you in terms of equity exposure. Uh, and very good reasons for that. But uh, if one looks around the world, there obviously are still a number of specialist investment trusts out there. And we've heard from a few this week, as well as uh, the generalist uh, emerging markets trusts. We've heard, for example, from Templeton Emerging Markets, the, the sort of daddy of them all, which has produced an interim NAV total return of minus 8.3%, slightly worse than its benchmark. But it's been a disappointing performer uh, of late, I think it's fair to say. And then we've heard for some of these frontier market investment trusts, including the bearings uh, emerging Eastern Europe and uh, et cetera, et cetera. There's quite a long title, that one, which I can't immediately bring to mind. And the BlackRock Frontiers Investment Trust, which have also produced trusts, which have slightly underformed their benchmarks. Uh, in the case of the bearings trust, that's not least because it had some exposure to Russia, and uh, that's obviously not been a great success. We've also heard from one of the Indian investment trusts, which have done paradoxically rather well. So do you ever look at these kind of trusts? And if so, what role do you think you know, single country or specialist regional trusts should play in an investor's portfolio, if anything? Well, it's been a very tough period for the emerging markets, generalists, funds, because a couple of the core plants have been swiped away. I mean, Chinese tech has been very difficult given the greater government intervention in those markets and, and trying to wind in the power of, of some of the tech businesses. So notwithstanding the fact that business models were extremely strong and often growth has been good, you know, valuations have been hit. And clearly the, another key part was extremely cheap Russian energy stocks, which this time a year ago, you saw a number of contrarian investors say, well, energy prices are going up. Russia looks like an interesting place to be. And of course, those were essentially all written down to, to zero. So it really has been an incredibly tough period. Uh, some of the frontier markets as well suffering under the impact of rising bond yields, which often puts a, a number of the emerging markets under pressure. As to your core question, do emerging markets have a role in portfolios? I absolutely think yes. You've got to think about the appropriate size. But I think there are some interesting vehicles here to get access to those. Um, it does strike me that there are rather too many of them. I'm not sure about the single country funds on the whole. Often you get very small subscale funds that are extremely poor liquidity, where the register is dominated by two or three large institutional players who often throw their weight around a bit. And it just seems to me that these have not flourished and need to be kind of rationalized and, and tidied up to have a smaller number of more distinctive offerings. But I think they do have a place. And I suspect after a really grisly year, that some of the emerging markets are offering quite interesting value. 
And my final question of all is about Japan. You've talked about the Japanese currency, which has been obviously very weak against the dollar for a long time now. Uh, but that might be turning. The dollar might be turning. So I guess it's a general currency question. If the dollar does turn, that would normally be good for emerging markets. But it's also an interesting dynamic uh, around Japan. And I think you have some exposure to Japan in your trust. I wonder what you think about Japan's role in the uh, portfolio uh, makeup. Yeah, so firstly, Japanese equities to us look very good value. That's just interesting kind of standalone. I think uh, Japanese industry has been somewhat undermined over the last couple of decades, really, by the emergence of China. And there's been very widespread investment by Japanese firms on the mainland in China. I think some of those trends are now reversing. I expect we will see greater investment in Japan. Japan's actually one of the few economies that's benefited from slightly higher inflation. I think inflation there is about 3%, which is not excessive. I think it's actually quite useful uh, stimulant, really, to the Japanese uh, economy. We also, though, held investments in Japanese index-linked bonds and more recently in Japanese cash, just because the yen basically hit an all-time low against the dollar really around the same time that uh, the gilt market was blowing up here at the end of September. It was an incredibly sharp move. In fact, I think the yen and sterling really fell pretty similar amounts, uh, which given the very specific issues we had here was kind of amazing. In fact, we had very high interest rates as the gilt yield spiked and our currency was weak. And that was a very bad sign of total loss of faith in the government. Japan, it was completely the opposite way. Their bond yields were not rising at all. And that actually caused the weakness of the yen. So we actually just had 2 or 3% in yen cash. Although I have to say, over the last month or so, that situation has reversed quite a lot. The yen has been very strong against the dollar. So some of that value has emerged somewhat quicker than we thought. So um, if anything, we are now starting to go the other way with some of that short duration bonds or cash. We wouldn't naturally just sit there with, with assets just for foreign exchange gains. But as it happens, we've picked some up in the short term. So, so that's great. But I think some of the longer duration assets in Japan, particularly the equities, look really interesting. So uh, after the UK, I think they're our biggest equity exposure. So that brings us to the end of our weekly podcast. Thank you so much to you, Alistair, for coming on board and sharing your knowledge across a wide range of markets and investment trusts. Always a pleasure to talk to you. I should say that there have been an awful lot of company results this week. And if you want to work your way through the whole list, you can do so if you're a subscriber to the Moneymakers Circle, our subscription newsletter where you'll also find our latest fund trust profile, which is at this time of the JP Morgan Global Core Real Assets Trust, ticker J-A-R-A, which recently reported some results, as well as uh, some outside contributors and my own thoughts on where we're going next. Plus, of course, the opportunity to uh, have a look at the Investment Trust Handbook, which is now available for purchase. So, as always, thank you again for listening. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.